how you doing? I'm Doug Devaney and you're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. Now here at Plastic Towers, first thing of a morning, yours truly can often be heard echoing through the West Wing with his rendition of Frank Ifield's timeless classic, She Taught Me How to Yodel. But this voice is as nothing by comparison with today's guest, Jessica Martin. Impressionist, singer, actor, writer and illustrator, she was one of the voices on the original Spitting Image, was a punk werewolf for Sylvester McCoy's Doctor Who, spent two years in the West End with Me and My Girl, and has, of late, written and illustrated Life Drawing, a charming and honest account of her showbiz trials and triumphs. She describes herself as an old-fashioned girl, so let's start the interview in an old-fashioned way, by asking, how are you doing? How am I doing? I can hear that in a slightly Irish accent, because I remember... That was what people would say when I would go on a holiday to uh, Edirne in County Fermanagh. It's probably a terrible, terrible accent, and I'm supposed to be accent queen here. But no, in short, the answer to your question, how am I? How am I doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you, Doug. Oh, good, good. Accents are a weird thing, aren't they? Particularly with, with ones that are close to family. Yes. Yes. Um, it's one of those things that I was constantly doing accents from the age dot um, and I blame my Irish mother for that because she could never tell a story of how the day had been without investing herself in all these characters it was like sort of Dickens saga you know a day at the legal office you get to experience everybody in all their vocal colours and of course nowadays and I'm doing I you know I'm doing accents telling a story to my kids and what do I get mum Mum, you can't do that. What you, You're being casually racist. You, you're going to get cancelled. You can't possibly do that. So, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe this is a lost, a lost form. I think that my initial intention, if there was any intention at all in doing an accent, was to assimilate and ingratiate myself by, you know, it's, that, it's like mirroring, isn't it? You know, a very conscious business technique. But I think there is, must be something natural in human nature that you try and I want to feel comfortable. So... I'm going to talk in the vernacular. Just continuing on, on the accent thing, because it's, it's, it's something that I've talked with uh, other interviewees about. Certain characteristics are given over to certain accents. And also, this is a country where, as somebody pointed out, in the United States, you can travel for 900 miles and still be in the same state. In this country, you travel for 50, and the accent's changed twice, and there's a different word for bun. <laughs> this is true. Absolutely true. Certain accents as well are thought of as more friendly than other accents, and therefore they might be required by businesses to lure in custom by fooling them with the accent that they broadly um, assigned as being friendly, user-friendly or whatever. So you started off, you say, doing voices from the year dot, and looking at your memoir, Life Drawing, um, available in all decent shops, (laughs) uh, you also were very much influenced by the TV and adverts. Yeah, I I mean, literally, uh, there is written evidence so my mum kept she didn't keep it for a long time but she kept a diary try and keep herself sane I guess when um when I was about two my little sister was a newborn and in it she wrote something to the effect of Jessica is sat in front of the television again and she's rubbing her hands over her face and saying came came was a range of soap back in the early 60s and up until not too long ago, I think, but yeah, I mean, I was I was mimicking and I was doing that physically and uh, you know and and in word from an early age. That was that was me. Was it mostly adverts? 
Well, well, I guess I, I'm trying to think now. I do have a very early recollection of seeing the Beatles uh, on Ready, Steady, Go, something like that. And, and I was singing, she loves you, yeah. Actually, it wasn't even she loves you. It was just, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, and my father, who was, we'll, we'll get on to the Irish connection shortly, I'm sure, but my mum was Irish and my father was from Singapore uh, and he was of Filipino ethnicity. And my father was a jazz musician. So there was music in the house and I was a naturally musical child. I guess most children are musical, but for me it was um, all the more because that was in my DNA. That was what my father did for a living. And he was constantly playing records or, or playing piano and doing his uh, exercises. So music was kind of just there. And for me, music was there in literal music, but also in the music of people's voices and accents. I've found the way people speak is endlessly fascinating. And you can have people who have the same accent, but different timbres, different pitches, different, you know, emphasis that color the way they, you know, the way they say things and, and they, they're little tells about themselves, I think, in the way one speaks to. Your dad's uh, Edo or Placido, yes? Yes, Edo, very good. Edo for short, Placido for long. And he was known as Edo Martin. Right, and he was not only a jazz pianist, but he led his own, I suppose, band rather than combo, wasn't it? Yeah, so band, or if you want to be sort of posh about it or impressive, dance orchestra, because we, I still have them actually in our record collection, but we have Edo Martin and his Latin orchestra live from the Cote d'Azur. Uh, and there's another one, Edo Martin and his orchestra playing mambos and chachas. So um, he played various types of jazz, but he, he initially was known in London for having a Latin American jazz orchestra. Uh, and he was heavily influenced in turn by the very famous Xavier Cougar, who'd been in, you, you will have seen Xavier Cougar if you're into old movies at all, so old musicals with Alice Faye or Carmen Miranda, invariably they'd have Xavier Cougar, you know, with his Cuban orchestra. So that's the kind of lineage that my dad was coming from. And of course, in the 50s, there was Tito Puente, uh, Latin was big, and then of course we had West Side Story, which was the flowering of that, all of that um, interest and, and excitement about Latin music. So my dad was kind of coming, he came to London from Singapore in the early 50s, but by the mid to late 50s, he was a bit of a star in Soho with this brand of Latin jazz music with whatever he brought from his upbringing as um as a musician at the raffles hotel in in singapore i was going to say go i mean say here we have a um filipino singapore i don't know what's the what the indicative yeah, well, term is uh playing latin american yeah yeah talk about you know cultural misappropriation or whatever or cross-cultural <laughs> you know whatever um but yeah i mean he was he he was not a typical Singaporean musician. He was very, uh, very kind of, I, I guess, experimental and pioneering. It, my dad's 
mantra in life was I want to do my thing and whatever dad's thing was at the time he'd go for it at hell for leather so yeah he was a big fan of the American and Latin American musos Oscar Peterson and um uh, Bill Evans as well were his sort of favourites piano-wise. Uh, do you think that also influenced your own musical taste? Because obviously it's like uh, where we were talking in the preamble yesterday to this, you described yourself as an old-fashioned girl, something I mentioned in the uh, in the intro, and your um, impressions that, that came through for you were, were people like Judy Garland, the Barbra Streisand. Definitely. So <clears throat> I mean, my dad wasn't, he himself wasn't into Judy Garland particularly, but in his record collection, I always remember I found a soundtrack of South Pacific with Mitzi Gaynor and Rosanna Brazzi, and I just played that endlessly and I knew the whole score. Ironically, I got to play Nellie Paul Bush in, in South Pacific many, many years later. But the other albums I remember my dad had were, he had a Jack Jones album, which was lovely, and he had Ella Fitzgerald and uh, Steve Lawrence. Steve Lawrence had a beautiful voice and he was married to Edie Gourmet, who had a fantastic voice, sort of like Doris Day, but a much jazzier, kind of husky, smiley voiced singer. So, yeah, definitely they were my influences. But I think um, I found, like my dad did his own thing, I found my own thing because I, in watching television, not only did I see adverts, Ready, Steady, Go, but I accidentally came upon these black and white movies from yesteryear and uh, and the very first thing that really made an impression on me was a documentary about Garbo uh, which was presented by Joan Crawford so two old movie stars for the price of one um, and I just had this sort of massive little girl crush on Greta Garbo um, and then when I was seven, I remember a news item and it was this big announcement. The famous Hollywood actress, Judy Garland, has been found dead in her London flat. Da, 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 da. And then they showed this clip of Judy Garland singing, clang, clang, clang with the trolley. And it was lovely. And there was this woman with long reddish hair and old fashioned clothes leaning out of a trolley. And I just thought, oh my God, she's amazing. Who is she? Who is she? And I think I had friends that had seen The Wizard of Oz. It was one of those films that you could still go to the cinema and see. This is, I'm talking about late 60s. But I knew nothing about her. But then after that, it's like every time a film came up on television with Judy Garland, I was there, you know. I was there, I was watching it. And then when I was about nine or 10, I saved up enough money to buy this double album of Judy Garland, The Hollywood Years. Um, still have it in my record collection this day, but it was all these fabulous songs that she'd sung from when she was at MGM. So literally she was probably age 12 to about 25, 26. Um, and yeah, that she was, she was my idol, she was my queen. So um, yeah, I, I found not, that I was leaning towards jazz necessarily, but I was leaning towards, I was heading towards musical theatre and the American songbook via Mitzi Gaynor, Judy Garland. And, um, and also my mum, she, she took me to see Barbara Streisand in Funny Girl for my seventh birthday. And because uh, she recognised, I mean, she'd taken us, me and my sister to see Sweet Charity 
probably because she wanted to see it and you know I better take the kids what am I going to do with the kids can't afford a babysitter so we went to see Sweet Charity and I, I, I came home dressed up mum's high heels and an old nighty and pretended I was this you know prostitute in a dance hall singing if they could see me now <laughs> as you do You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts. We all come from somewhere else. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Born Jessica Cecilia Anna Maria, with a couple of extra names thrown in later, Jessica Martin's parents met in the coffee shop and jazz era of London Soho. Given her starring role in West End and touring musicals, it seems only right that her story begins with the dance. I began life as a cha-cha-cha. And I began life as a, should we put it, as a gate crasher. I was not expected to the party. <laughs> um, so to give you the backstory with my mum. So my mum was born Mary Bernadette Maguire. And she was one of a large family of, well, 10 children, uh, County for Manor. And my, um, my grandfather had a farm in Edney. I always remember going to visit Cahor, which is, in my romantic uh, imagination, it's the Tara of the Maguire family. There's a little Gone with the Wind reference for you. Um, And my mum, I found out probably in later years, uh, was a bit of a bit of a black sheep in the family. Didn't understand the party line is, you know, when you're born into a big family, there's no room for being an individual. You do what needs to be done and you're going to go to church and you're not going to moan about it and you're going to get up early and you're going to go outside and play outside because that's what kids do they're seen and not heard and they're absent until it's tea time and then it's prayers and all the rest of it so she um went off to I mean she was sent to a very good uh Catholic boarding school the St. Louis Nuns Convent in County Down. And I think we had a relative, a great aunt who was Mother Claude was, you know, she was the headmistress there. And unfortunately for my mum, her eldest sister had been an absolute saint, a model girl, child, pupil. And when my mum turned up at the convent, it's like, you know, why aren't you like your sister? Everything my mum did was always going to be in the shadow of her perfect sister. So a bit wild and a bit kind of um, adventurous. So she didn't get to have adventures until she managed to uh, get herself not thrown out. I think she just flunked. She was at teaching college in Belfast after she finished at the convent. She was barely older than the kids that she was teaching. She was not remotely interested in being a teacher. So my grandma just, it was like, oh God, what are we gonna do with this daughter? I know, let's send her off to London to be one of the, I think they, they kind of call them now the hello girls, but um, my mum was, she was, even though she flunked her exam, she was bright and she was fluent in French. So she became a telephonist, you know, telephone operator. Um, there was a, a place in Chelsea where they had international phone calls. And my mum would sort of do that, plugging in the spaghetti wiring and, and, and putting people together, bonjour monsieur, and you know, what do you want to talk about? Um, and that was her. So she was in a girls' hostel in Chelsea uh, doing this job. But, you know, I'm afraid my mum, true to type, 
The job didn't last very long. What my grandma had described as a nice, safe, um, you know, fitting job for a young lady. My mum was suddenly, suddenly found herself as a waitress in a very glamorous themed restaurant called the El Cubano. And at that time in London, it, it was, my mum always, I remember her telling me this story over and over again. And her first line would be, you have to remember, you see, in those days in the 50s, London was gray, pea soup fog, and it was still recovering from the war. And so the bit of glamour that was there was provided by coffee bars and these restaurants, which had been started by a guy called Doug Fisher. Um, so there was the El Cubano, which was a, a South American themed restaurant. There were, in terms of coffee bars, you had the Macabre Club, which was where people had coffee uh, on a coffin and you had these little skull ashtrays. Um, there was another place which was the Roman rooms and there you'd be served by Roman slaves serving you a steak on a flaming sword uh, and the menu was a scroll. So, you know, we have immersive theatre now, Doug. Nothing new under the sun, you know, secret cinema. They've been there, they did it in the 50s, but we just don't know about it. I know because my mum was there. She was part of the original dining experience. Absolutely. So my mum was thrilled because, I mean, she was a very attractive young woman. I have photographic evidence that she was, I mean, she was sort of kind of frumpy back at boarding school. They were living on white bread, jam and pickle. And then she came to London and suddenly she lost a bit of weight and she could wear the clothes she wanted to wear. And she was very good at makeup. She looked, she did look like a movie star, my mum. And the criteria for these waitresses was, uh, sexist as it sounds but you know that's another time they the waitresses had to look good they were generally uh, models like Lucy Clayton or they'd been to RADA and they were just kind of waiting tables till they became Joan Collins um, and so my mum had that job and after hours she and her girlfriends would go to a place called the discotheque which was you know they played records and they would play latin american music um and i think i don't know whether it was because my dad went down there after hours or possibly actually possibly i think my mum had gone to the nightclub which was called the Cote d'Azur club in in soho and it was the original location for the very first ronnie scotts so ronnie scotts was in i think it's in dean street now but it was like one of the other like Greek Street or Frith, you know, one of the other places, and that's where the Cote d'Azur was. So my dad was, as I say, he was a celebrity in that kind of circuit. Uh, so, so my mum would have danced to the Edo Martin Orchestra, but one evening, my dad came after hours to the discotheque, which is where my mum and her waitress mates would hang out, and, um, and my mum danced with the famous Edo Martin and you know and the, the rest is history it's my history um but you know unfortunately for my mum <laughs> she was one of many beloved by my dad so you know he was courting my mum and he had another girlfriend who I think was living in Spain um and uh, you know as you know from the, the book Doug I found out when I was 11 years old I had my Davina McCall moment, um, I found out that I had a long lost brother in Iceland. 
because my father had gone to Iceland for a, a jazz festival and that summer he'd got an Icelandic girlfriend and actually they were married um, and he sired a son and the son at the age of 17 was you know looking for his dad and so I, I was 11 and that was the first time I met my brother Valgir and uh, yeah my dad was a very complex character and he had a very complicated romantic history but as he said that's the deal I'm a jazz musician what do you expect you know if you come on board with me this is what you get so no one was expected to complain. In Life Drawing you talk about your, your mum keeping uh, diaries and storytelling um, and, and things like that so she had also had a very artistic bent as well. Yes. And do you think that was part of your inheritance from her? Oh definitely I mean I just have a lovely memory of my mum at a four mica table sketching a very pretty face. And I said, who's that? She said, oh, that's my friend Twiggy. <laughs> I absolutely believed her. It was, it was a bit like a drawing of Twiggy. Um, so my mum, she loved doodling. She could turn her hand. Actually, she was a, a much better like maker. She would, drawing wasn't really her main thing. She could like, you know, uh, make you... I've still got a chair actually that's upholstered by her, but she could just turn her hand to anything. Um, and, and I did find out very late in the day that um, there was a nun, a nice nun, at the, one of the only nice nuns at the convent school who was very into drama. And she had predicted for my mum that she should go to RADA and become an actress. But, you know, Irish girls from small towns do not do that kind of thing. And actually, anybody who's on the stage was thought to be right next door to being a loose woman. It's just not a nice thing to be doing. That's why it's the second oldest profession in the world. <laughs> so my mum, she didn't vicariously live through me because what I will say about my mum is probably she would have secretly wished that I didn't go into show business. I remember there was um, like a hushed conversation one night where she was saying to my dad, I think I declared something about, oh, I want to audition for drama school when I'm at school. And she just said to daddy, she said, God, Jessica's just not, she's not cut out for this. She hasn't got the temperament. She's really sensitive, which I was and I am, you know, and you don't lose that. However much people tell you, oh yeah, you grow a pair or you grow an extra skin. I think it actually gets harder the older you get in our profession, but I was determined. So when she knew I was determined, and also when I started, first of all, I was singing with my father as a teenager. You know, I was going to lots of different um, pubs around London and my mum would drive me to wherever I was going and she'd sit the whole night and wait for me to sing my two or three songs that I might be doing with the Brian Booth Jazz Orchestra or whoever it was I was singing with at the time. So she very much, I mean, she just was a selfless person. So when, when it was all about, me, selfish Jessica, following her career and her star, she supported me um, in so many ways, you know, emotionally, but also just physically being there for me and filling the gaps that I couldn't do because I'd be off doing you know, tours or whatever. She'd be sorting out house things or when I had my kids, she'd be babysitting my children. So she was, yeah, she was remarkable and very gifted, but she didn't achieve any of her dreams but if you said to her do you feel that you led a satisfactory life because I mean she passed away three years ago she would have said yeah 
I, I, I got everything I wanted because for her, despite coming from a dysfunctional family, however, however much my grandma and granddad probably thought they were doing the right thing. I mean, let's face it, you know, everybody now re recalls the past and we're all from dysfunctional families and hers was dysfunctional. They couldn't give her the emotional backup that she needed and she couldn't fulfill her dreams with the kind of upbringing that she had. But she created by accident, she created a family. She had my sister and myself. And then once that, as, you, as she used to say, you know, I, I never blamed anyone. I always think if you make your bed, you lie in it and you just deal with what life gives you. And she, she made that her, this was her, we were her pride and joy. And she made being a mum an art form. That's the only way I can put it. She was the ultimate mum. We'll be back with Jessica Martin in a moment. But first, it's time for that section of the podcast where I ask one of my interviewees to name a member of the diaspora of personal, cultural or political significance to them. This week, artist, filmmaker and documentarian Ruth McHugh with a truly iconic plastic pedestal. It gives my age away, but like I was, I was madly in love with John F. Kennedy. And I remember, you know, all of that. I remember... Um, I remember him coming to Galway in the 60s. Um, I remember him on television. I remember knowing that she was wearing a pink suit. And I think television might have been black and white at the time. But definitely knowing that um, Jackie's suit was pink on the day. Um, yeah, and I, I think like my father would have had his hair just like John F. Kennedy's, you know, that kind of wave in the hair and cut like Kennedy's and wear the same kind of glasses, you know. Um, so we were totally in awe and so proud. I remember across the, the road as you went into Galway, there was a banner that said Cade Meal of Falcher for John F. Kennedy, and it literally started to crumble. It was just left up there for years and years, and it was across the street to St. Cade Meal of Fulcher. And, and a lovely thing, I, I, you know, kind of a very odd thing. When I was in Liverpool, I was quite fascinated by the Wellington Rooms, the old Irish centre there. And it was locked up and there was scaffolding outside and there were people beginning to work inside on it. And I was fascinated to see the inside. And I was passing outside and I'd taken photographs and I met this guy with a hard hat and he said, I can't let you in. But if you give me my ca your camera, and I had a really good camera with me at the time, he said, if you give me the camera, I'll take some photos inside for you. So I gave him, a, it turned out he actually owned the business and he took the camera inside and he took photographs for me. And when I went home, um, he had taken one photograph and there was a mural inside uh, the, the, the center. And uh, there was John F. Kennedy with a girl with red hair in a bob that like, I mean, I so identified 
<laughs> it was it was very uncanny. And I and like I'd never seen it, this mural of John F. Kennedy and this girl with a red haired bob, but she was a young girl and I I probably wouldn't have been as red, but I really like it was a funny, peculiar identification with something I will never see. You know, it, it's gone now. It was like something disappearing, you know. Television was so brand new and he had omnipresence on the level of Christ, you know. It, it was like omnipresence. He was everywhere and he was he was film star handsome. And his wife, like, was perfect. Like, my mother would have, um, you know, really admired her style the the you know they really emulated that style you know the the less is more not too much very elegant cuts you know um I think my mother would have worn a lot of clothes like Jackie Kennedy and admired her a lot I was very very aware of them and totally like totally involved in how tragic his death was you know it was it was an absolute tragedy at the time to us because I, I I mean we had no idea of, of of what television meant and you know television was new totally new Kennedy came John F Kennedy came with the box he came with the television you know Ruth McHugh there and if you want to hear more of what Ruth has to say or indeed any of our previous interviewees then just go to the episodes page at www.plasticpodcasts.com. Also available on Spotify, Amazon and Apple Podcasts. And if you want the very T.O.P. from T.P.P., why not subscribe? Simply place your email address in the space at the foot of our homepage at www.plasticpodcasts.com and all the plastic wonder to be had can be yours. Now back to Jessica Martin. And I want to pick up on an earlier comment by her mother on her sensitivity and how that works with impersonation. I think I'm, I'm an empathetic person where it counts, you know, um, and I see, um, I see everybody's pain. So just because somebody is rich and successful, be that, uh, say, a, a fellow actor or a, let's say even a royal, you know, I did royals on Spitting Image and I did Princess Diana. She was one of the voices I did and I, I knew there was something when I did this voice and it was sort of very, very kind of a low key and she's well-spoken, but she used to kind of sort of slur, slur her words. And she was, um, she was somebody, you know, she, she's now accused um, posthumously as being, you know, attention seeking. She knew how to play the medium, but I, I saw this person who was essentially a shy person thrust into the spotlight, who was very, she was very kind. In a way, um, acting, especially being a character actor, is, is the same as being a writer. I think writers are actors. They have to put themselves in the shoes. They have to feel the feelings and express themselves as different people um, and, and not judge, you know, just be the person. And then it's for the reader or audience to make their minds up of where, where they're coming from or why they've done things. If we go back to Spitting Image, and I did our uh, Fergie, our Sarah Ferguson, uh, her mouth was always open, never uh, never closed. Uh, I don't know why, as if she's on the brink of, I, 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 I'm going to say more. I'm quite finished. I'm greedy. Um, 
there are, yeah, I mean, there's just so many things to take into account. And then I think if I was finding a voice difficult, I would observe, literally kind of look at the person to see if there was something in the way that they were moving their mouth or, you know, that would give an inkling, you know, somebody, let's think now, who speaks... I'm trying to think somebody would speak with a clenched, clenched jaw. I can't think of a specific character. There are people that kind of talk like that. I mean, I know people who talk like that, kind of doing a ventriloquist out of it. You know, there's, there's got to, I mean, there's got to be tension. Surely they're, they're a tense person. They're angry about something. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I, I just find it fascinating. Scylla <laughs> Black was probably the very first person that I ever did an impression of when I was a little girl. She had the Scylla Black show. And, um, and I always thought she sounded as if she was being strangled. <laughs> she had this, this voice that was not coming out from her mouth. It was kind of somewhere in the back of her throat, you know, kind of muted. But, um, and there was always a sort of excitement about the way she was talking as well. There was like an anticipatory flavor to her. <laughs> but I think also, with these impressions, especially back in the day when I was just doing impressions of people that I personally liked, it was, for me, it was trying to, it, it's, it's like a form of magic. It's like, oh, if I can capture a bit of them, it's, you know, I'll get some of that magic dust. I could, I can feel like them. I can feel their, their glamour and their fame in, you know, it's going into my pores as I do the voice or do the Donny and Marie show. <laughs> For my, for my Irish relatives, which I did do. Life Drawing is a very, very honest piece, and you're, you're, you're a very um, open person here as well. You talk about your, your, your dad's complex love life and so forth. So when you were writing Life Drawing, did you, did you ever feel as though uh, I'm sorry, maybe sorry, airing too much of the family linen in public? I, oh, I, I went through um, the nine circles of hell, actually, putting the book together it was one of those things I have got you're right I am an open person but I am a bit of a hermit too I'm a strange dichotomy of one minute I want to be out there I want to I'm showing off I'm being an exhibitionist I'm putting things maybe on social media oh guess what this has happened without you I'm dropping a name and then the other side of me is thinking what you Jesus how how self serving how narcissistic can you be can you not just lead a nice quiet and worthwhile life and stop putting it not everything is up for sale and up for grabs and up for hey jazz hands look at me so with the graphic memoir I you know it was one of those things a, a lot of my ideas like the voices they're spontaneous they come to me um and I think yeah that's right how the even the notion of doing graphic memoir we I was at a meeting of something called ladies do comics so this is a monthly thing that goes on um it, it's on zoom now but it used to happen in London maybe in a comic shop maybe at foils um and people who were not everybody actually was a comics creator but people that were interested in comics obviously lots of ladies but there were men there too um and almost like kind of a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, we don't, the two hosts of the thing would open up by saying, good evening, I'm, I'm, it was Nicola and Sarah, I'm, I'm Nicola and I've done this, and I'm Sarah and I've done this. Now we're going to go around the room 
and we'll each say something about ourselves. So it was a November meeting in 2016. And I remember I was sort of feeling very, very uh, satisfied with the way things were going. Because I remember I'd published a few um, comics and graphic novels and I was kind of being more accepted and being given more opportunities in that field. And concurrently, I was getting opportunities I, I, every year when I get a job, I sort of, I'm, I'm joining my hands and thinking, oh, thanks be to God, but it's probably gonna be my last job. I always feel like I'm hanging on by my fingernails. But I'd been on a bit of a role. I played the mum in Elf the Musical for about three years on the trot. And then out of the blue, I got to step in. Somebody had dropped out of Big the Musical and they were doing it in Ireland. And I, you know, I'm suddenly, my name's on the bill and I'm in this musical. So life was really good. And I was kind of thinking, I'm at a place now. I kind of, I'm on, on this bit of the hill where I, I've got a lot to look back on. And I think I've got a lot of things that I've kind of learnt and would like to share. So anyway, we went around the room and the, the thing was, we're going to go around the room and can you say what you, what you would like for 2017 or what you want to do in 2017? So I just said, I'm going to write a graphic memoir. That's what I said. And then, um, then you know, when I, I do have this, um, what's the word, kind of thing that, you, you know, when you make a declaration or when you kind of put a foot forward, you know, the universe comes to meet you, that thing. So um, I, there was a, a, um, an editor in the comics world who was, she was setting up an independent, no, she wasn't setting up independently. She was going with Unbound, who do crowdfunded books. And she was going to be heading up the graphic novel division. And she just put out a little social media message. I'm looking for uh, properties to um, ha have all my books for the graphic novel division. You know, hit me up if you've got an idea. So I got in touch with her, Lizzie Kay, her name is. And she absolutely loved the idea of my life story as a graphic memoir. Um, and, and then that was it. So then I had to, I, I signed the contract and then I had to crowdfund. So I had to beat the drum even before I'd written the thing down on paper. I had to sort of kind of say to everybody, hey, I'm writing this book and it's going to be this. I, I think I illustrated 10 random pages for it. Now, here's the thing. I remember when I told my mum that I was going to be doing my life story, she said, God, could you not wait till I was gone? Prophetic words or what? Because actually, um, later in 2017, very, very sadly, my mum uh, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Uh, but by that time, she'd actually given me her blessing. She put her name to the book. She fund, you know, she was one of the crowd funders on it. And she you know it's like oh god well you know it, it's almost like back in the day when she said oh Jessica's not suited for acting but Jessica's going to do it anyway oh Jessica's shouldn't be doing a graphic but actually no and the reason why I wanted to do the graphic memoir aside from showing off about all the wonderful things I've done in showbiz was because I wanted to tell the story of my mum and dad and I wanted to I suppose for my dad's part, I wanted to forgive my dad. I wanted to kind of write him as a character in this story and do this thing of looking at him with hindsight, but also looking at him as a person, not my dad, but like as a, as, as a guy who's got a talent, who wants to pursue this talent and he's not family minded at all, but he keeps 
you know, his his loins or whatever it is, or maybe it is just being a um, uh, serial romantic. He just kind of keeps falling for women and getting into scrapes, but he's really, he, he's got this fixed star that he's going for. And tragically, and that kind of, I'm sorry, but that works well in a book, doesn't it? But he, he doesn't achieve these things. He, you know, life moves on and he gets older and the star is not what he thought it was. So there's all of that. And then for my mum's part, I wanted to tell the story of this amazing woman. And unfortunately, I can't tell all of the heroic things that she's done because there are certain people involved in those sides of the story who don't want, you know, for whatever reasons. But there are things that my mum did that are would truly, you know, you sort of think, wow, wow, God, she is amazing. But she was a charismatic woman um and I think so often uh you know women do this to themselves as well it's sort of they oh you know oh who am I to be doing this and you know and, and also there is that Irish thing which I'm sure Doug you understand too that you do not big yourself up you do not that's that's pride that's arrogance if somebody wants to say something nice about you that's great but you know it's, uh, it, it, we, you know, we, we don't get big for our boots here. That's boasting. <laughs> You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts. We all come from somewhere else. Okay, so Email us um, at theplasticpodcasts@gmail.com. We went on a Jessica Martin's illustrated so autobiography, time, Life Drawing, married, is so an honest and touching Nigel. work. Not just about uh, show business two, and the pressures of performing, two, two but also about her family. In this last section, about, say, I want to know how she went from working with time. comics to uh, working we went in on comics. A Father's Day and I also and, try and out a new we always used question. to go to the South Bank. Let's see how that works. And I remember randomly, we weren't kind of particularly interested in what, what the space had to offer. We went to the Tate Modern. And I remember walking around and, you know, I'm afraid my conclusions were the same as they ever were, which was... I'm looking at a brick and I'm looking at a chain. Did somebody make this brick or, or sculpt the chain? But I'm not saying, this is not what, this is not my idea of art. So my idea of art probably would have, I would have been better off going to the National Portrait Gallery or um, Tate Britain. But anyway, ironically, I'm coming out of the Tate and towards the coffee shop and the gift shop and I, I saw some lovely postcards of people that visited the Tate and all sort of raving had a lovely time and they all did doodles and they were fantastic and I was thinking this is what I, I really get excited about people seeing people's sketches and I remember you know if I'd go to see say it was an art exhibition of Leonardo da Vinci but the initial sketches or anatomical sketches were the thing that would really kind of float my boat um, and then I went to the gift shop and I found this book called The Creative License, Permission to Be the Artist You Always Wanted to Be by Danny Gregory. Beautiful, hand-illustrated, hand-written book. Um, what I loved about it was it, very, very humble, very uh, pragmatic book on if you want to draw, draw. Don't be waiting for somebody to say, well, you can't draw, you can't do this. So what Danny Gregory proposed was that you have an, a drawing book that you take with you everywhere. You know, just as a writer is advised to take a notepad everywhere. Take a drawing book, take a fine liner, don't take a pencil and eraser, 
and you're just gonna draw everything that you see every day. And that was it. I just, from that day onward, for the, probably the next year and a bit, I drew coffee cups. I drew the steering wheel of my car when I was picking up the kids from school. I drew, on holiday, I was drawing my poor husband sunbathing. I was drawing a woman, unbeknownst to me, sitting opposite me on a deck chair. Buildings, I was never interested in doing anything other than pretty faces and people, but I was suddenly doing objects. And I guess uh, subconsciously, learning about perspective because I'd be doing things from whatever angle I was sitting at I just draw what I saw so I got the call again it was another one of those situations like oh my god I've got a call for an acting job what's going on and it was a really good job it was playing the lead in Spamalot on tour and Phil Jupiter was playing King Arthur and the first thing I packed was my sketchbook. I'm going to take the sketchbook. I'm going to be drawing. When we go to all these wonderful places, I'm going to find the nearest National Trust place or castle. I'm going to draw that. Anyway, needless to say, the work took up most of my energies. Um, but I found out that Phil Jopidus is, um, <clears throat> you know, he's a Renaissance guy. He's got varied interests and he loves comics. So every week you go to uh, your Forbidden Planet or whatever the local, um, you know, the, the lo local store was and he'd buy his comics and he'd come back and he'd be throwing down ears you know ear Dave, Dave here's your here's your the boys or here's the latest you know Batman um and then I said casually I said oh I I do like the work of Brian Tolbert so then he got me a copy of Luther Arkwright um anyway I had my sketchbook with me and it turned out that he's you know more than just comics but he'd been a graphic designer years ago and was you know seriously interested in art I thought I'm going to show these pictures because I've been doing all these pictures in my book and hadn't really shown them to anybody other than immediate family and friends but you know that that's the show off in me I kind of wanted a bit of endorsement and recognition so I actually got it Phil looked at this book he's like oh yeah lovely dynamic lines it's sort of like Disney in the 60s when they were having like you know they didn't rub out the the lines of, I didn't know what he was talking about, but he just kind of had slightly compared my work to Disney stuff. And then he said, um, you know, you should do a graphic novel. I mean, you're an actress. Every actress has written a script at some time. It's just a script, script and drawing. That's what it is. Boom, tish. That was it. I just had a, it was a light, it wasn't boom, tish. It was a light bulb moment. I just thought, oh my God, I'd never thought of, comics of course of course it's a script it's kind of a storyboard but a bit more kind of detailed and emotion so I just started devouring and luckily for me coming into comics at this very late stage of the game suddenly there was all this digital technology so I'd been sketching in my book and being very strict with myself and not erasing and doing everything in fine liner but suddenly I discovered how to use Photoshop and Illustrator. And I, I just was an autodidact. I just got all the books I could and was doing online courses. And then I found out that, you know, in the, the field of graphic novels are graphic biographies. And um, I was sort of devouring those. And my first comic was about Clara Bow, the silent movie star. Um, and that was called It Girl. And, and by that time, I had a wonderful mentor in Mark Buckingham, who is a top DC 
artist. He does fables and he, he works with Neil Gaiman a lot. Um, so, you know, I, I suddenly found this field where I could, I could truly express myself because I think <clears throat> the myth about acting is that people call it self-expression. Yes, I suppose you bring yourself to parts that you play or whatever, but generally speaking, you're held in by the, um, the confines of what the script requires, what the director requires, uh, and what the part requires. You know, you're not playing yourself, you're playing a character. So if your character's not doing very much or, you do, or you're in a part that you don't feel personally is, is written as, as deeply as you'd want, well, you know, that's the job, that's what's required, that's it. So I think by that time in my life and my career, um, I, I'd enjoyed a very, very um, satisfying and very successful career. And I, you know, I would hate ever to come across as bitter or ungrateful, but there were certain aspects I sort of thought, I have, I have been there. I've done this now several times. It's just not, I didn't find it particularly exciting. A lot of the parts that were coming up for my age group and my type. Um, so I just kind of, you know, busied myself. The comics I just found absolutely absorbing. I also, I'm a lifelong learner, like lots of people are, and I just loved the fact that, I, you know, after a week and I'd be struggling with something and suddenly oh, I've solved this or, I, or I'm getting better at this. This is what I just love is that you never go backwards when you're doing art. You're always do, it's always a forward progression and you... You know, the worst thing is that you look back at your wife and think, oh God, did I really get that published? Oh my God, it's awful. I can't look at it anymore. But it's, um, yeah, it's, and it's not too late. From a geekish perspective, are there any particular artists that you admire? Uh, I love uh, Michael William Kaluta, who was one of, uh, there were, uh, in fact, I love all of these guys. There was a group of artists, it sounds like a pop band, but they were the studio in the 70s. And that's um, Bernie Wrightson. Oh, Brian, no, Barry Windsor-Smith and Jeff, Jeffrey Catherine Jones. And their art is very classically based. So they're very sort of influenced by pre-Raphaelites. And I guess, you know, again, that feeds into they're coming out of the 60s, 70s, and that kind of psychedelic era, very kind of decorative, dreamy, mystical kind of art. So, yeah, I, I like that. Um, oh God, there are so many artists that I love. I love Richard Piers Rayner, who did Road to Perdition. I've got a copy of, yeah, Barry Windsor Smith's Monsters that was released recently, but it's, it's quite harrowing. It's a bit scary. <laughs> when I was reading yours, I was reminded of um, uh, the uh, Love and Rockets. Oh, love. Oh, gosh. Yes, I love the Hernandez brothers' work. Thank you. That's a huge compliment. What's your favourite joke? Oh, my favourite joke is um, a, a one that my son was telling when he was two years old. It was his very first joke. It's my husband and my son just, God, they're constantly telling jokes and I totally forget them. Um, doctor, doctor, I've got a piece of iceberg lettuce up my bum and... No, I've just told it the wrong way. We need, see, I'm terrible at telling jokes because the doctor says that's just the tip of the iceberg. And so my son, who's he's living at home at the moment, he's, he's just graduated from film school, but he said, I'm, I think every evening when we come to dinner, we should all of us write our own joke. 
not a joke that we found on the internet. So I haven't done one. But it came came to dinner with one which was um, two owls are conspiring to murder another owl. They're in cahoots. Do you... <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to ask that joke question more often. Um, what uh, do, do you still have family out in Ireland? Yes, I do. And uh, do you get to visit at all? I haven't visited. Funny enough, the last time I saw them was when I did. I did a comic con in in a Skillen comic festival, um, and uh, and it was in a Methodist church. All my family are Catholics, but you know, we put all these things, these sectarian differences aside when it comes to art. That's another thing that I love about the arts too. And uh, yeah, and I think my couple of my cousins and their offspring came to that and I met up my other some of my other cousins couldn't make it to the actual convention but we met up for for drinks in a pub and I am very much hoping that when I mean things are aside from the petrol shortage at the moment that's really putting a, a date on this conversation um things will move back to normal and yes I do want to get over and I especially want to bring my my children have never been to Ireland. And I want to take them. They're very interested in their Irish heritage. And finally, it's the question I ask all my interviewees. Um, what does being a member of the Irish diaspora mean to you? That means to me, my lovely uh, community of school friends that I have to this day. So I because of the lockdown, I was reunited with about six of my friends that I was at St. Michael's with. We were in the same class through to sixth form. One of them I'm still, you know, still close to. I, I would say she's my best friend, but the others, you know, it was like the years just melted away and we were meeting weekly on a Zoom quiz and we had such a laugh. And I think, you know, I've had friends since, but I've never and never will have friends like them. Something something very special about us us irish brits you've been listening to the plastic podcasts with me doug devaney and my guest jessica martin the plastic pedestal was provided by ruth McHugh and music by jack devaney find us at www.plasticpodcasts.com follow us on twitter facebook or instagram or email us at theplasticpodcasts at gmail.com. The Plastic Podcasts is a production of The Plastic Projects.